Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, Features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. <laughs> I'd like to thank Novo, a brand new sponsor of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Novo is powerfully simple business checking. You're making something new with your business and to support you, Novo's built a new kind of business checking. Now you can get a free business checking account in just 10 minutes at novo.co slash gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Babbel. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn any new language on the go. And when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, now you can get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use the promo code GOLD. We wrapped up another volatile week on the downside with all of the major U.S. stock market indexes finishing in the red. Let me start off by looking at the Dow Jones, which dropped 2% approximately on the week. We're now down just under 11% from the high 10.9, I think is the number. So officially in correction territory. Same thing for the S&P, down a little bit more, 2.9%. So just shy of 3% on the week. That index now 12.8% off of its record high. So deeper into correction territory than the Dow. Russell 2000 actually held up the best on the week of the major indexes. It was only down 1.1%. 
but it is down 19.5% from its highs. So just outside of official bear market territory. Not so for the NASDAQ composite. That was the weakest index on the week, down 3.8%. You're talking almost 4%. It's now off 20.6% from the record high. So the NASDAQ clearly in bear market territory. Of course, the average NASDAQ stock down way more than 20.6%. I think what's more typical of the average American portfolio when it comes to investing is what's going on with the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF. These are the high-flying stocks that everybody piled into near the highs. That ETF was down 7.7% on the week. Most of that decline happening on Friday, but that index is now off 65% from its record high. This is a brutal bear market. And of course, I was talking about the ARK Innovation ETF near the highs, and I was very critical of Kathy Wood and the reputation she had and the way everybody was pointing to her as some kind of a genius, the new messiah of investing, the new Warren Buffett. I kept pointing out that all that praise was unwarranted. She just happened to be in the right place at the right time, which turns out to have been the wrong place because she was just owning the same overvalued stocks that everybody else was irrationally buying. And I pointed out how it became a self-perpetuating spiral where the more money piled into these stocks, the higher her ETF went, and then the more money was invested in the ETF based on that past performance. And then that new money that went into the ARK Innovation ETF was then used to buy these overpriced stocks, bidding up the price and continuing the spiral. And I pointed out that once the spiral reversed, you would see a catastrophic decline in both the value of the individual shares and the ARK ETF. And that is exactly what we've been witnessing. And there's still a long way to go for both the stocks and the ETF to drop. Of course, closely paralleling the ARK ETF is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, one of the more highly correlated securities to that ETF. Held up a little better though than ARK on the week. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust only dropped by 2.4% during the week. That means that index is 56% off its all-time record high, but also a lot of downside risk in both Bitcoin and in that Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Some of the highlights are rather lowlights on Friday. A couple of big decliners, one of them being DocuSign. Now, DocuSign was one of the darlings of the stay-at-home trade. During COVID, everybody was signing their documents electronically, and so all of the spec money was piling into DocuSign. I was pointing this out in real time, the absurdity of the valuation of that company and how it really didn't have a monopoly on the market. There are plenty of other applications that allow you to virtually sign documents. It's not like they own the market to themselves and they weren't making a bunch of money. In fact, the company was losing money, but that didn't stop speculators from buying it. Now, yesterday they reported some 
bad results. I think this is the second time in a row that they've missed investors' expectations. So the stock was clobbered by another 20% on Friday alone. This stock is now 76% below its record high in September of last year. So it's only been about six months and the stock is down over 75%, close to 80%. Also, Rivian down 7% on Friday, also disappointing investors with results. That stock also down 79% from its November 2021 high. So it dropped by an even greater percentage than DocuSign in an even shorter length of time. In fact, Rivian hit its record high four days after its IPO. It went public and then it went on this four-day run and then exhausted itself and began its decline. But if you go back to the podcast that I recorded following the IPO of Rivian, I pointed out in real time the absurdity regarding the valuation that investors were signing to a company yet to earn a profit. In fact, I don't even know if they sold any vehicles. The entire business model was a pipe dream. Now, maybe they'll end up doing well. I have no idea, but neither do investors. And they were willing to pay a ridiculous price just for the privilege on speculating what may or may not happen. And now you're down almost 80% if you were unfortunate enough to buy the high. But even if you bought anywhere near the high, you're still getting clobbered. And again, who knows where the bottom is in? Just because its stock is down 76% or 79% doesn't mean it can't go down 90% or 95%, certainly can. So these stocks are hardly bargains. All you have is these artificial benchmarks that people wanna look to to claim that the stocks are cheap when in fact they still may be very expensive, they're just not as insanely expensive as they were at their peak prices. In contrast though to the down week in stocks, gold had another up week, even though it finished the week on a down note and didn't manage to hold a 2000 handle. Gold finished the week at 1991. It was off about six bucks on Friday but it still managed to end the week up 0.8%, so not bad. And gold stocks also enjoyed an up week, not a spectacular move, but the GDX was up 2.4%, and the GDXJ, those are the junior miners, were up 2.3%, so pretty much the opposite of what happened in the overall stock market. And I think this rally is just getting started. In fact, that big midweek decline where gold at one point was down better than $70 when it fell from its high of better than 2,050, that type of move is meant to shake out the weaker players. Whenever you have a bull market, the biggest moves typically are to the downside. And that is specifically to test the resolve of the bulls and to shake out the weak players. And I'm sure there were some people who were looking at gold that got frightened out of the market based on that drop. Well, it's their loss because I think we're headed a lot higher. Bull markets just don't like to carry around a lot of excess baggage. And so the excess baggage gets shaken loose when you get these spectacular counter trend moves. 
And that's what that big decline was. Gold has a long way to go up because the fundamentals couldn't be better. Unlike for the U.S. stock market, where they really couldn't be worse, the fundamentals for gold couldn't be better. That's why it should be pretty obvious that there's still a lot of downside risk in the U.S. stock market. I mean, think about the fundamental backdrop for U.S. stocks because they remain historically overvalued at a time where the Fed is just beginning a rate hiking cycle. We're about to raise rates for the first time next week, but it's a long road back to normal, let alone tight. So we're just starting a tightening cycle, yet we have record high valuations. We're also on the cusp of a recession. You know, even if we get a quick resolution to the Russia-Ukraine crisis, which we probably won't, but even if we do, the fundamentals are still horrible. And if we don't, they're even worse. So it's amazing that the U.S. stock market hasn't already dropped by a greater degree than it has. That doesn't mean it won't. It just means that investors are slow to recognize these bearish factors, but they are recognizing them and they will weigh down the price of U.S. stocks in the weeks and months ahead. Looking at some of the other markets, oil had one of its first big corrections. It dropped 8% on the week, although it closed Friday up a few dollars. But the week ended with crude oil at $106.30. Now, that is a little bit lower than it closed the prior week, but we did set a new high intra-week of $130.50. Now, that's just a new benchmark that's going to be taken out. I do not believe that $130.50 is going to be the high for this cycle. I think there's no way oil is not going to make a new all-time record high in U.S. dollars. We've already made a record high in euros. We haven't made one in dollars, but that's coming. Speaking about dollars, the dollar had another up week up about a half a percent as bond yields also rose. Yields on the 10-year U.S. Treasury moved up from 1.724 to 2.04. The yield on the 30-year Treasury went from 2.151 to 2.364. As I said on my last podcast, bonds are now lower and yields higher than when the Russia invasion of Ukraine. So what's trumping the political or geopolitical risk as far as bonds being a safe haven is the greater threat of inflation from which there is no safety in bonds at all. That's why bonds are down and gold is up on the week because what investors really need a safe haven from is inflation not geopolitical uncertainty. And by the way, Bitcoin didn't go up on the week either. Bitcoin was a little lower because Bitcoin is also not a hedge against inflation. But I want to talk a little bit more about this dollar rally because I really think this may be the dollar's last hurrah, the swan song for the dollar. Because what's really going on right now geopolitically is we are reminding much of the world, why it needs to move off the U.S. dollar standard. 
especially some of these larger economies that are regarded as our enemies, like China and some of China's friends, like India, and now, of course, Russia. And I think the Arab world is also taking a hard look at what's going on right now and considering their tenuous relationship with the United States and how easy it would be for some future president to vilify Saudi Arabia or any of those other countries for a host of political reasons. And I think a lot of people are waking up to the reality of the dangers that this dollar reserve system portends for the rest of the world, in addition to the cost of maintaining the dollar status. Because the U.S. economy has so weakened industrially as a result of its reliance on this crutch, the ability to consume without producing, the ability to run enormous deficits, the fact that Americans don't have to save, that we could just go out and buy whatever we want and rely on the rest of the world to fund our profligacy, this is exacting a heavy cost on the rest of the world, but not only does the world have to bear the burden of this cost, but now they have to accept the risk of this status being used against them as is fully evident from what's happening right now with Russia and the sanctions. So as I've been saying from the beginning, I think the United States has a lot more to lose from what's going on right now than Russia. Because the ruble is just another currency. The ruble isn't the world's reserve currency. The dollar is. We have a lot to lose. Russia doesn't have much to lose. I mean, sure, Putin could lose some credibility. But as far as the overall Russian economy, who knows how much longer Putin's going to be in charge. The leadership may eventually change. Russia's status won't be dramatically diminished over the long run based on where it is now. But that's not the case for the United States. We enjoy this unique, exorbitant privilege. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply as the issuer of the reserve currency. And our standard of living is dramatically higher than we would normally be entitled based on our productivity. Based on what Americans actually produce, we should be living a much lower standard than the one most Americans enjoy. And these higher living standards are only made possible because of the dollar's reserve currency status and the deficits that it allows us to run, both budget deficits and trade deficits. So the government can spend a lot more and consumers can spend a lot more and everybody can borrow a lot more 
only because of the dollar status. And that is what we are putting in jeopardy. Now, I think it was in jeopardy anyway. We were going to lose that status solely based on the enormity of our deficits and the unsustainable fiscal path that we've been on for years. But I think what we are doing right now on the world stage when it comes to Russia is going to backfire and accelerate this process. And Biden right now is bragging about how much damage has been done to the Russian economy, to the Russian ruble, to the Russian stock market. Well, you know, when you live in a glass house or a glass white house, you shouldn't throw stones because even more damage is going to be done to the U.S. economy, the U.S. stock market, the U.S. dollar, when the dollar loses its reserve currency status which at the moment is hanging in the balance and our own politicians, our own central bankers are clueless to the reality of this threat. Fortune favors the bold, the strong, and the brave. And for your business to break out of anything that's holding it back, you need business checking as brave as you are. Introducing Novo Business Checking. Novo is powerfully simple business checking. And unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to fit your business to save you time and free up your cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join a community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who've already found the customizable business checking solution that admires the brave. You know, nowadays, bank accounts have actually started to complicate running your small business. Now's your opportunity to simplify things with Novo. In fact, with so many seamless integrations, fans now call Novo the Swiss army knife of business checking. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash gold. Plus, the Peter Schiff Show listeners can get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. So just go to novo.co slash gold. That's N-O-V-O dot C-O slash gold to sign up for free. Novo.co slash gold. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech. It's not a bank. Banking services are provided by Middlesex Federal Savings. FA member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. We also got one piece of economic data that came out on Friday that was significant. This is the preliminary estimate for the March University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index. And this reading unexpectedly plunged all the way down to 59.7. The prior month, we were at 62.8, which is still a pretty low reading. The expectation was for a slight decline to 61.7. Instead, we plunged all the way down to 59.7. This is the lowest reading since early 2011. So we were not too far off of the great financial crisis the last time consumers were this pessimistic and we were just coming out of the great recession. And one of the primary reasons for all of the gloom were inflation expectations. The one year forward Inflation expectations are now at 5.4%. This is the highest that's been since December of 1981. So much for Powell's claim that inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. Now, of course, 
Consumers are right to expect more inflation, but they're wrong to expect it to only be 5.4%. It's actually going to be much higher than that. In fact, over the past 52 weeks, inflation has been 7.9% officially. Now, unofficially, it's close to twice that amount. So consumers are expecting inflation in the year ahead to be lower than the year behind. So they're still optimistic that the inflation problem is going to get better. I mean, they still believe the problem is going to be here, but they don't believe it's going to be as bad as what they've already experienced. Well, it's actually going to be worse. So if consumers are this gloomy based on the expectation that the inflation problem will get better, imagine how much gloomier they would be right now if they actually realized that this bad problem is about to get a lot worse. So I think there's a lot of room for this index to plunge further as reality rears its head and consumers realize what's in store for them because they're still getting a lot of propaganda from the government and the media that the worst is behind us. And of course, all the inflation is simply a function of Russia and Putin. In fact, the Biden administration and all of the minions are now talking about Putin's price hikes. Like every time a price goes up, it's all about Putin, the Putin price hikes, as if the U.S. has absolutely nothing to do with it. We're taking the Federal Reserve completely off the hook. That was the title of one of my recent podcasts, Russia being the newest excuse variant. Well, that's exactly what's happening. First, it was COVID, and now it's Putin and Russia. In fact, it's still COVID. Whenever they talk about why prices are going up, they blame the pandemic. They blame Russia and Putin, or they blame the greedy corporations. In fact, Biden is specifically calling out the oil companies. The oil companies are responsible for rising oil prices because they're just not pumping enough oil. Obviously, if they could pump more oil at these higher prices, wouldn't they do it? I mean, don't they want to earn more money? Don't they want to sell as much expensive oil as they possibly can? The idea that they're just sitting on all this oil and not selling it is nonsense. One of the reasons that oil companies aren't pumping more oil is because of the hostility that the Biden administration has against the oil industry. People are afraid to invest in oil and gas. They're worried about more regulations. They're worried about more taxation. In fact, I can smell a windfall profit tax coming for the U.S. oil sector. And that's one of the reasons that I've invested more heavily in international stocks. I know the U.S. has a proclivity of doing that, right? As soon as the oil industry really starts to make money, they slap a windfall profit tax on them. Meanwhile, when oil is low, they don't get any relief for that. But the minute they start making some money, they get taxed. What kind of message does that send if you're telling these oil companies, hey, if you ever get to a situation where the oil price is really high, we're going to seize your profits because we're going to claim it's a windfall. Well, that discourages investment in exploration and development. And it's interesting that oil companies are basically the only companies that get hit with a windfalls profit tax. You don't see these technology companies, if all of a sudden they're making a bunch of money, there's no one pounding the table for a windfall tax on technology companies. And it's only because it's easy 
for the voters to get mad at oil companies because they hate paying higher prices for gas. And it's easy for politicians to win brownie points with voters by vilifying the gas companies because nobody likes them. And the ultimate irony, though, is that the Biden administration specifically went after oil and gas because they pumped too much. They were polluting the environment. They were causing global warming. I mean, could you imagine if any version of the Green New Deal had actually passed? You had a lot of progressives that wanted some action on the Green New Deal. That was the centerpiece of AOC's campaign. Among other liberal things, the Green New Deal was almost like a litmus test for her support. Imagine where we would be right now if any version of that were passed. Yet Biden actually has the chutzpah to come out and claim that the problem is the oil companies and their lack of production and that they could be pumping a lot more oil and the Biden administration was all for it and a big friend of the oil and gas industry. But for whatever reason, these greedy companies would rather gouge the consumers than pump more oil. Whether it's saving more and spending less, getting organized or losing weight, there's a lot of worthwhile goals to set for yourself this year. At the top of my list is learning Spanish with Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Not only is learning a new language a fun and engaging new hobby, you can use it while checking travel off your list. The entire Babbel process is addictively fun, fast and easy. Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons for real-world use. Because I'm living in Puerto Rico now, I run into a lot of people who don't actually speak any English. So brushing up on my Spanish makes life a lot simpler. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching methods have been scientifically proven to be effective. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and your accent. Everything is voiced by real native speakers, so you can hear nuances and even learn slang. There's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, video stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start learning your new language today with Babbel. And right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months absolutely free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use the promo code GOLD. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com using the promo code GOLD. Babbel, language for life. But probably the most absurd of the excuses that Biden is offering is trying to deflect genuine criticism of government spending. Biden gave a speech, and in fact, I didn't even know he said this until I heard a clip on the Tucker Carlson show. I happened to be on Tucker's show last night. If you missed it, we'll have it up on our YouTube channel. But while I was waiting to come on, I was listening to Tucker's talk about inflation. He did a very good job of laying out the problem, but he was playing a lot of clips of the Biden blame game. And one of the clips was Biden specifically saying that all the critics out there that were trying to claim that the government had something to do with inflation were wrong, that they were just plain wrong. And Biden said that government spending does not 
contribute to inflation, as people are alleging. And then he actually went on to brag about the fact that the government isn't spending more money under his administration, that his administration is actually cutting the deficit by $1 trillion, the biggest reduction in the deficit in history. And so he is cutting government spending. And so the absurdity of accusing him of contributing to the inflation problem is a lie because A, according to Biden, government spending doesn't cause inflation and B, he's cutting spending. So even if it did, he's not doing it. First of all, it's not necessarily the government spending that causes the inflation because if the government raised taxes to cover the cost of that spending, well, then you wouldn't have the inflation. The inflation comes about when government spends money that it doesn't collect in taxes and relies on the Federal Reserve to create the money to cover the spending. It's called debt monetization or quantitative easing if you don't want to call it by its real name. And that is what is causing inflation. Again, the definition of inflation, the original definition before the government or academics tried to change it so that Americans wouldn't know the source of inflation, the definition is an expansion of the money supply. Putin is not expanding the U.S. money supply. COVID-19 did not expand the U.S. money supply. Oil companies, nor any other company, is expanding the U.S. money supply. It's the Federal Reserve that's doing that. And why is it doing that? To accommodate government spending. And so the U.S. government, despite anything that Joe Biden wants to say, is the sole cause of our inflation problem. Yet Biden is trying to use all these various excuses to fool the American public into thinking that this problem is caused by these external factors over which the U.S. government has no control. In fact, Biden wants to claim credit for all this great stuff, this booming economy, but not accept the responsibility for the inflation that is directly the result of the policies that he's implementing to create the illusion that the economy is booming. When Biden talks about all these jobs that are being created and how strong the economy is, none of this would be there but for all the inflation being created to inflate this gigantic bubble. So you can't accept credit for the good things that you believe the bubble created without also accepting responsibility for the bad things that the bubble created. But of course, no politician wants to do that. You want to accept credit for whatever's good and shift the blame for whatever's bad. But I want to take a look at these claims that Biden is making about how he's a big budget deficit cutter, right? How he's some kind of fiscal hawk and he is the biggest deficit cutter in U.S. history. This type of bragging is very similar to his claims regarding job creation, right? President Biden constantly claims credit for all the jobs that are being created during his presidency. But he completely overlooks the fact that these jobs that are being created, in quotes, that he's taking credit for, these jobs existed before he became president. But before he took office, while Trump was still president, we shut the economy down. And so all of these people left those jobs. 
The jobs were still there. The workers were just not working the jobs. They were on the sidelines because of COVID, so they were staying at home. So now Trump leaves office, Biden shows up, we decide to reopen the economy, and now the workers who left their jobs when Trump was president are coming back to those same jobs now that Biden is president. So Biden didn't create a single one of those jobs. Those jobs already existed before Biden became president. It's just that the people who had those jobs weren't working those jobs because they temporarily left those jobs because of COVID. Now they're coming back. But the reality is more people would have returned to work but for the Biden administration. So we would have had more jobs restored had Biden not been president. Biden is interfering with the restoration of jobs, not creating them. So the same thing is happening with the budget. Biden is bragging about the fact that he is cutting the deficit by a trillion dollars. Well, he's only cutting it by a trillion dollars in relation to the massive increase in the deficit that just happened during the prior year. In 2019, this is the last year before COVID, the federal budget deficit clocked in at just under a trillion. Now, of course, these are the official government numbers I'm using. I'm not using the actual numbers because the unofficial numbers, which are real, are much bigger than the numbers that the government admits to. But I wanna kind of talk about the same numbers that Biden is referring to. So he is referring to the official numbers that dramatically understate the actual size of the deficit because they don't include a lot of spending that they want to pretend is off budget. And so therefore they don't officially score it as part of the budget deficit. But if you go back to 2019, the deficit was about 984 billion and the US government was spending about $4.4 trillion. Last year, 2021, the US government spent $6.8 trillion and we ran an official deficit of $2.8 trillion. Of course, unofficially, well above $3 trillion, but the official numbers were $2.8 trillion. That means that in 2021, the government was 55% bigger than it was in 2019. That is an incredible increase in the size of government. And I'm measuring the size of government based on how much it spends. But we increased the size of government by 55%, but we didn't increase taxes to pay for it. So how did we get 55% more government for nothing? We didn't. There is no such thing as a free lunch. So if we've got 55% more government than we had a couple of years ago, how did we pay for it? Easy, we paid for it with inflation. That's how government is being funded through inflation. Remember, the cost of government is not what it taxes, but what it spends. Every dollar of government spending equals a dollar of taxation, one way or another. And if they're not gonna tax us honestly, they're gonna tax us dishonestly, which is exactly what they're doing. They are taxing us with inflation. So it's ridiculous for President Biden to claim that the US government spending has absolutely nothing to do with the big increase in consumer prices when that's exactly how this increase in government spending was financed. Because how else are we paying for 55% more government if nobody's taxes went up? 
And that's because everybody's inflation tax went up and the inflation tax falls heaviest on those who are least able to afford it, the middle class, the working poor. But getting back to these numbers and how Biden is claiming that he's this big deficit cutter, if you look at the Biden administration's projections for 2022, and they're just projections, right? The year just started. And these projections were made pre the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So you could completely toss them out. But according to the Biden administration, in 2022, federal spending is going to decline to $6 trillion. And the budget deficit is going to be about $1.8, $1.9 trillion, just below $2 trillion. And this is the big cut that he's talking about, reducing it from $2.8 trillion in 2021 to $1.8 trillion in 2022. First of all, all of this is pie in the sky, and the official numbers will be much greater, but there's no chance that we're going to meet these projections. But even if we did, even if government spending was reduced to just $6 trillion, that's still 36% more than the government spent in 2019. Why? The COVID emergency is over. Why is government 36% bigger than it was in 2019? And obviously taxes aren't 36% higher. So the budget deficit is going to be double in 2022 than it was in 2019, even if the rosy assumptions embedded in the Biden budget end up coming true, which of course they will not. These projections are likely to be off by a mile. And in fact, we'll probably end up spending more money in 2022 than we spent in 2021, not less. And where is the money gonna come from to pay for it? Not from higher taxes, but from higher inflation because the Fed is gonna print the money. And even though the Fed is pretending that they're going to shrink the balance sheet, in reality, they're going to end up expanding it even more. And, you know, I want to go back again and talk about quantitative easing, because when the Fed first came up with the idea of quantitative easing and launched it, QE1, of course, they didn't call it QE1 because nobody knew other than me and maybe a few other people that there would be a QE2. So initially it was just QE. We didn't call QE1 QE1 until they launched QE2. And then we went back and named the first one QE1. But when they did QE for the first time, everybody claimed that it was the only time they were going to do it. Yet I was out there saying, no, 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 they're going to do it again. And I knew they would do it again because I knew it wouldn't work. And I know that the way government operates, when something doesn't work, you don't rethink it and try something else, you just do it again and you do it even bigger, which is what they did. Now, when the government first did QE, there were a lot of people, not just me, that were saying, this is inflation, this is debt monetization. That is what drove the price of gold up to $1,900 an ounce in 2011, was because people were correctly perceiving the threat of inflation embedded in this QE program. It was not until QE2 had been launched and I think even suspended and we were moving on to Operation Twist or QE3 that the world suddenly concluded that people like me were wrong 
that quantitative easing wasn't causing inflation. And that's when you had Paul Krugman taking a victory lap saying, you see, guys like Peter Schiff who were saying that QE was going to cause inflation, they were wrong and we were right. It's not inflationary. Now, first of all, I didn't say that QE would cause inflation. I said that QE was inflation. It's a euphemism for inflation. Inflation is expanding the money supply. So what I said was that the inflation that the Federal Reserve was creating and calling quantitative easing was going to result in big increases in consumer prices. Now, that is what we didn't see up until recently. For years and years and years, the official CPI numbers were under 2%. And that's what enabled guys like Paul Krugman to say guys like me were wrong because they kept pointing to the official CPI numbers as proof that QE didn't cause inflation. Well, I knew that QE was inflation and it was only a matter of time before that inflation showed up in the official CPI figures. But one reason it took so long is because those numbers are a lie. Those numbers are probably underestimating the true rate of inflation by at least 50%. So all the years that Paul Krugman was bragging about inflation being below 2%, it was actually quite a bit above 2%. It's just that the government was lying about it. And so Krugman and his buddies were bragging about low inflation that didn't exist. Now, it wasn't up in the stratosphere. We didn't have double-digit inflation, and there were a lot of reasons for that. There was a big lag in the true impact that inflation had on consumer prices. One reason was because of our enormous trade deficits, where we were able to export all the dollars we printed abroad, and so we were able to import real stuff and export our paper. If we couldn't do that, if we had to spend all the money the Fed was printing here in America, if we didn't have access to the world's production, thanks to the dollar's reserve currency status, we would have seen a much bigger increase in consumer prices. But we were able to export that inflation to the rest of the world. The other reason for the lag was that a lot of the inflation was going into financial markets. It was going into the stock market. It was going into the real estate market. It was going into the bond market. It was going into all sorts of markets and nobody cared. Because when inflation is making assets go up, people think they're richer and they're not worried about it. Now, one thing people were complaining about was the widening divide between the very rich and everybody else because as inflation pushed up asset prices, those assets were disproportionately owned by the very wealthy. So one of the effects of all this inflation was to widen the gap between the rich and the poor. Now, that should have been something that Paul Krugman should have been against because he's supposedly the champion of the little guy, of the downtrodden. Yet the policies that he was advocating were making the rich richer and keeping the poor poor, or actually making the poor poorer by driving up their cost of living. But what's happening now is that we're finally seeing a much more pronounced effect of quantitative easing on consumer prices. And clearly what accelerated this was COVID because that's when we kicked the printing presses into overdrive. That's when the deficit spending really exploded and the QE that the Fed engaged in post-COVID is larger than all the QE programs pre-COVID. So now we're finally seeing the impact 
on consumer prices of the inflation that the Federal Reserve has unleashed. And all of the people who initially said that QE wouldn't cause inflation don't understand this. They have no idea why this is happening. They're still convinced that QE doesn't cause inflation because they're looking back at QE 1, 2, and 3, and they didn't see any immediate inflation as a consequence of that. And so they think, well, QE doesn't cause inflation. And so what's happening right now has absolutely nothing to do with quantitative easing. It must have something to do with COVID-19, or it must have something to do with Russia, or greedy corporations, price gouging. It's got nothing to do with any of that. Inflation is and always is and always has been a monetary phenomena. Even Milton Friedman knew that. Everybody should know that, which is why it's so amazing that so few people in academia or on Wall Street are willing to acknowledge what should be obvious, that all this inflation is made in America. In fact, it's one of the few things that's still made in America is inflation, and we're going to make a lot more of it, especially if we don't acknowledge the cause. As long as we're trying to look for scapegoats, as long as we're going to blame exogenous factors on inflation, it's going to get worse. And in fact, we're going to create more inflation to try to solve the problems of inflation. Because what the government is going to be looking at are rising food prices, rising energy prices, rising rents. They're going to be looking at the impact that's going to have on the economy, on consumer spending. I already mentioned earlier in the podcast how it's weighing down consumer sentiment. Ultimately, inflation is going to cause recession. And what is the government going to do to stimulate the economy in recession? Create more inflation. And what's amazing to me is the fact that nobody is questioning any of this. How come nobody is saying, wait a minute, The Fed's about to start raising rates next week. They're going to lift off and rates are going to go up by one quarter of 1%. We're going to go from zero to 25 basis points. Inflation is already 7.9% officially. Unofficially, who knows where it is, maybe double that amount. But even if you accept the government's doctored up version of reality that inflation is 7.9, why isn't anybody saying maybe a quarter point rate hike won't cut it? Maybe it's too little too late. Maybe even if the Fed raises rates seven times this year, which a lot of people don't think they'll do, they think it's going to be fewer, maybe three or four. But let's say the Fed manages to raise interest rates all the way up to one and a half percent by the end of the year. Why is nobody saying, what if that's not enough? What if that doesn't work? What if you can't put out a 7.9% inflation fire with 1.5% interest rates? In fact, I don't think there is any historic example of inflation this high being extinguished with interest rates this low. Why is nobody saying, what if we have to really raise interest rates. What if at the end of the year, it turns out that the inflation rate went up and not down? What if after five or six or seven quarter point rate hikes, the year over year inflation rate hasn't gone back down near 2%? What if it's gone up? What if it's closer to 10%? What if it's higher than 10%? Nobody is asking these questions and saying, what if the Federal Reserve has to raise interest rates to 10%? And what if they can't raise it to 10% in quarter point increments? What if they have to go medieval? 
What if they have to just raise interest rates from 1.5% to 10% in one swoop, in one meeting? And what if 10% isn't even high enough? What if by the time the Fed realizes that their go-slow quarter-point rate hike approach was ineffective and didn't work and actually fueled an even bigger inflation fire, what if they have to go even higher than that? Nobody is considering the impact that that's going to have because it's going to be catastrophic. Think about what 10% interest rates would mean. Forget about something higher than that. Just think about 10%. What would that do to an over-leveraged U.S. economy? I mean, what would happen to the real estate market if interest rates were 10%, meaning that maybe the cheapest mortgage you could get was 12%? What would happen? How many Americans can afford to buy real estate at today's prices with 12% mortgage rates? They could barely afford the prices we got now with 3% mortgage rates. The real estate market would crash. How many people would still make their mortgage payments if the real estate market crashed? What about all the people that have adjustable rate mortgages? How many people are going to make those payments when they go up to the maximum? And forget about the housing market. What about corporate America? All this debt that's out there, corporations have been selling all this low-yielding debt and they've been using the money to buy back their overpriced stock. What's going to happen when that debt matures and now they got to roll it over and interest rates are 10% and so corporate rates are 12% or 13%. How are they going to roll over that debt? What's going to happen to corporate earnings when all their money goes to debt service? And what's going to happen to corporate earnings when their customers are spending all their money on their debt service and can't buy their products? The stock market is going to crash. And of course, the stock market would crash by definition if interest rates went up that much because stock prices are a function of interest rates. You're discounting the future value of their earnings. So not only would earnings crash if interest rates were 10%, but the discount rate that you would use to value those collapsed earnings would be much higher. And so stock prices would be eviscerated. What about the banking system? The banks would fail. If the banks suddenly had to pay 10, 11, 12% interest to their deposits, yet they have portfolios of low yielding long-term debt, they would all go bankrupt. And then what would happen to the depositors? They would lose all their money because the FDIC doesn't have any money to bail out all these banks that would be insolvent in a high interest rate environment. And in fact, what about the government itself? The government would be insolvent. We have a $30 trillion national debt financed with T-bills. The average rate right now is 1%. The government is spending $300 billion in interest on a $30 trillion debt. Well, if rates go to 10%, as all that low-yielding debt matures and has to be rolled over at a 10% rate and not a 1% rate, now you're talking about $3 trillion a year in interest payments, not $300 billion. And of course, what would be happening to the U.S. economy if interest rates were 10%? We would be in the worst recession ever, which would mean government tax revenues would implode as spending exploded. The budget deficits would be skyrocketing. This would force the federal government to slash spending on entitlements like Social Security and Medicare and also raise taxes substantially on the middle class worsening the severity of an already severe recession. In addition to the fact that the interest cost is skyrocketing to service the debt we already have, but the government would be racking up record debt, even more than it racked up during COVID, 
in an economic catastrophe that would be brought about by 10% interest rates. I mean, we had a very severe recession when rates went to 20% in 1980, but a rate of 10% would do far more damage now than 20% did then because we had a much stronger economy. We had a lot less debt and we were still a creditor nation. We were still the world's biggest creditor nation. We still had trade surpluses. America was the mirror image in 1980 of what it is today. We're a complete basket case. We couldn't even handle 5% interest rates, let alone 10%. In fact, we saw what happened in 2018 when the Fed got interest rates up to 2.5%. The whole economy started to implode. Well, if we couldn't handle 2.5% rates in 2018, we sure as hell can't handle it now. We have so much more debt today than we had back then. So nobody is asking these questions. Nobody is contemplating the various scenarios regarding what's going to happen if the Fed is wrong. Because it's not like the Fed has a great track record of being right, especially on inflation. Everything the Fed has told us about inflation has been wrong. Yet now everybody believes the most recent lie that these little rate hikes are going to vanquish the inflation that first the Fed said didn't exist and then claimed was transitory, and now it claims it's going to get rid of it by moving interest rates back up to where they were when there was no inflation. How can the appropriate monetary policy to fight the highest inflation in 40 years be the same monetary policy that you used when we had no inflation to fight? In fact, even if the Fed gets rates back up to where they were pre-COVID, Back then, the Fed was still claiming that there wasn't enough inflation and its monetary policy was geared to creating more inflation than we had. Well, how can that interest rate, the same interest rate that the Fed was using when it said we didn't have enough inflation and we needed more, how can that be the same interest rate that's going to fight the worst inflation in 40 years and if accurately measured the worst inflation in our lifetimes? Because the inflation that we have just experienced in the prior 12 months is higher than any 12-month period during the entirety of the 1970s. And everybody looks to the 1970s as the worst inflation ever, when in fact the worst inflation ever is right now. And this decade is going to be a much more inflationary decade than the 1970s. And we're just getting started. This is 2022, not 2029. And not only is it going to be stagflation, but it's going to be an inflationary depression because it's not just a stagnant economy that we're going to have. It's going to be a depression and it's not just high inflation. We may even get hyperinflation. We are going to get the worst of both worlds, yet nobody in the mainstream is even contemplating the possibility that this happens. But not only am I contemplating it, I am helping everybody who will listen to me prepare for it. Thank you.